Support for SyncBook Radio comes from listeners like you. Consider helping to make independent productions like SyncBook Radio possible by becoming a donor. Your generous gift helps to keep these unique voices broadcasting and exploring. Details about how you can help can be found at thesyncbook.com slash donate. Thanks. Is it possible to love so desperately that life is unbearable? I don't mean unrequited. I mean being in the love. In the midst of it and desperate. Because knowing it will end. Because everything does end. I keep the beast running. I keep the 100 low lead on tap. I foresee attacks. I'm young enough. I'm old enough. I used to love to fish for trout more than almost anything. My name is Hig. One name. Big Hig if you need another. If I ever woke up crying in the middle of a dream, and I'm not saying I did, it's because the trout are all gone. Every one. Brookies, rainbows, browns, cutthroats, cutbows, every one. The tiger left, the elephant, the apes, the baboon, the cheetah, the titmouse, the frigate bird, the pelican gray, the whale gray, the collared dove, sad but didn't cry until the last trout swam upriver looking for maybe cooler water. Did you ever read the Bible? I mean sit down and read it like it was a book. Check out Lamentations. That's where we're at. Pretty much. Pretty much lamenting. Pretty much pouring out our hearts like water. Christ, Hig, we're not recreating here, are we? Good goddamn. Hello and good morning. I am William Morgan, and you are listening to 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio at thesyncbook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. Today is the 25th of November. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And here, at the end of all things, we bring you our 160th broadcast. Although it took the end of the world to make us Kings Four Day, we're going to explore hope in the midst of apocalypse and find out if connection is still possible. And we'll do so with a blue healer named Jasper in a 1956 Cessna 182. Good morning, Doug here, and today we're sharing 42 minutes with the award-winning adventure writer and best-selling author of The Dog Stars, Peter Heller, a longtime contributor to NPR and a contributing editor to Outside, Men's Journal, National Geographic Adventure, and a regular contributor to Bloomberg Business Week. Heller holds an MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop in both fiction and poetry. He is the author of four books of literary nonfiction and two works of fiction, the most recent being The Painter, published this year by Knopf. More information about his work can be found on his website, peterheller.net. Today we will be discussing, probably without spoilers, his 2012 novel, The Dog Stars, a post-apocalyptic work that contains as much loveliness as it does devastation. It's nine years after a superflu that has killed most of the people on the planet, and yet beyond mere survival... We still seek an experience and gratitude of being alive. Hello, Peter. Welcome. How are you? Good morning. Thank you. Let's just start with 2012. Your book came out in 2012. Was that by design to calculate on the end of the world? 
<laughs> no, I wasn't. I wasn't consulting my Mayan calendar, you know, which I, I carry around on my wrist. <laughs> nope, it was just time to write a novel. I've been a nonfiction writer for a long time, and I'd always wanted to write fiction. And um, I decided because I'd been writing nonfiction, I always knew what was going to happen and knew what the end was going to be because it was about things that actually happened. I wanted to be surprised and not know. And so I sat down to write this novel, having no clue, and just started with the first line. And um, a few pages in, I realized that you know it was an, an apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic novel. And I was sort of like, you know, dang, I don't want to write a post-apocalyptic novel. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start writing this? Hmm, I wrote it really fast, so it was pretty much just a year a little over a year before it came out, I wrote it in, you know, seven months and they published it nine months after, you know, it sold right away and they published it nine months after. So I guess a year and a half. So, and I, it's my understanding that that's not necessarily normal, that oftentimes it takes books a long time to go through the works, but is that relatively speedy then? Yo, my gosh. I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, most people, you know, take a few years to write a novel. Um, and um, then, you know, there's a, there's quite a bit of sort of production time and editing. And um, But, you know, I, I had been wanting to write fiction since I was six. And, you know, I did everything you're supposed to do when you want to be a great writer when you're a little kid. Um, you know, put I heard Jack Lennon used to put... Um, words up on the wall that he didn't know and on cards and stuff like that. I did that. I read the dictionary, I, you know, copied out stories. And then I was an English major in college and, um, they didn't tell me at the English department at Dartmouth that you, um, can't make a living being a poet or a short story writer, which, you know, they, they should tell you that. <laughs> so came out. Excuse me. I came out of school and um, had to do everything else, and I started writing for magazines and stuff. But I'd had this. I just had wanted to write, you know, like my favorites, like Conrad and Hemingway and people like that, since I was a kid. So when I did have the time, it pretty much, you know, it was. I was ready. You know, I was primed, and it was sort of a white heat. Well, stylistically, this book, it almost reads like poetry. Is do you think that's your your literary voice or was that Yeah. That's a, that's a lifetime of, you know, loving poetry and, you know, and writing it and, you know, not I mean, being a poet in in 2011 or 2012 or 2014, it's sort of like I don't know, it's sort of like being a master of, you know, the lute or the harpsichord or something. I mean, it's like archaic. It's arcane and nobody, I mean, nobody really reads poetry anymore. It sort of comes out in you know popular music and stuff like that, and 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 in great great fiction. But it's such a small audience, and um, so you know I could I couldn't make a living doing that, but I always wrote it. And so when I sat down to write a novel, I think you know the that the music and the language was almost to me more important than any story. Well, there's no quotation marks in this. And then also, it, it seems like you're you don't attribute who's saying what. You just leave it to the reader. You know, I did that for a reason. I you know some of my favorite books have been the stories that are to orally told. I mean, they're set up like that when you uh -huh. when you read them. Of course, you, you know um, stories like 
you know, like Con, I love Joseph Conrad, and, and, and a few of his greatest novels are set on, these, on this, you know, yacht in the Thames while these guys are waiting for the tide to change. And it's sort of dawn, you know, and their mist is along the banks, and it's just getting light. And, um, you know, Marlowe clears his throat and says, you know, I have a story to tell you guys. And everyone kind of rolls their eyes. <laughs> oh, no, Marlowe's going to tell a story again. And it's the heart of darkness, you know, or it's Lord Jim. And, um, it, you know, the style of writing when Conrad wrote that, it was written as almost as heard from this character Marlowe as he told it to these people on the boat. And I always love stories like that. They have a different quality. You know, to me, they have a different quality than a story that's just written to be read and on the page. And so when I sat down to write this, you know, I went to my coffee shop where I write and I started with the first line and it was as if this guy, you know, this guy Higgs started talking to me and it was as if he was sitting across the campfire telling me what happened to him a few years ago. And, you know, the whole time I wrote the novel, I was just like, don't think, don't think, just listen. I didn't plot it out. You know, I didn't think about what character was going to do what, or I needed this action. I just let him tell it. And so it was very, you know, it was extremely thrilling and uh, I never knew it was going to happen. And so, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of, you know, there wasn't a, a lot of planning. And did you use the same tactic on the painter? I mean, was was I it? I did, a, was yeah, it, but it was, it was a, a different. I mean, I, yeah, I did. Oh, and that's about the quotation marks. I mean, it, it occurred to me as he was telling it that you know, if I was, I wanted to write the dog stars so that someone could just pick it up and read it to their friends aloud. And it just occurred to me that those people hearing it wouldn't see quotation marks. Or, you know, it wouldn't really matter, you know, the attributions and stuff about who says what. If you could understand it, just listening, you know, sort of sitting around a campfire and listening to it, that's how I wanted it to be, uh, you know, proffered. And so so that's why those stylistically, they're not in there. It's just really meant to be read aloud. And, um, yeah, the painter started, I mean, listen, you know, I mean, I, you know, I had written all these articles about adventure. I was a kayak, expedition kayaker and stuff, and I wrote a lot of adventure stories. And... Uh, you know, I always knew it was going to happen next. So when I sat down to write fiction, finally, you know, after a lifetime of wanting to do that, um, I, you know, I didn't want to know. I wanted the thrill that you get kayaking on a river when you come around a corner and you don't know what's there, the waterfall or a pool and cougar drinking or something like that. You know, it's exciting. I wanted that. I wanted to go to my coffee shop and sit down and be that thrilled. And I called my high school with Tom Hughes, who ends up being the producer and showrunner for the show Lost and a bunch of other, you know, really successful TV shows. And um, he knows about plot. I mean, if you saw Lost, there's like always eight plots running at the same time. <laughs> right. <laughs> he knows about structure. And I called him up and I said, hey, do you know any, you've worked with lots of fiction writers. Do you know any novels that just have no clue and sit down and just to write and start. And he goes, he didn't even hesitate. I mean, he said, yeah, I work with Stephen King. He often, you know, sits down and has not no idea and starts with the first line. And that's a voice. And the voice is a character and the character's in a place. And there's a situation because there's always a situation. And then he writes into the story. 
And then he said something that really surprised me. He said, Elmore Leonard. Uh, I worked with him. He starts that way often. And, you know, those are tightly plotted crime novels in South Florida, right? You know, and they're, so I thought, well, okay, that gave me permission. And, uh, and I thought, well, because Stephen King and Elmore Leonard, they're so plotted. I thought, well, they must start like that and then pull back and then, you know, really think about it and plot. But I didn't worry about that. I just started, it was sort of like, you know, getting your, you know, getting your, your, your papers, your like, you like your pilot's license. Okay, go fly. <laughs> so that's how the dog starts was written. When I got to the painter, I was like, hmm, that worked last time. Let's just do that again. I started writing, and I realized a few days into it that the that the character talking it was first person again, somebody telling a story, and the character sounded a lot like this guy that I know, actually a really good friend. He's a painter in Taos, New Mexico. <laughs> And I thought, he sounds like Jim Wagner. And I thought, well, Jim Stegner can't be Jim Wagner. I decided that it it wasn't because Jim Wagner was still alive and the liability issues would be too too <laughs> dicey. <laughs> Excuse me. So I um, just kept going. And three weeks into it, I, I thought, wow, you know, this, this does really sound like Jim Wagner, my buddy. I, I got to call him. So I did. <laughs> and he was okay with it? He's like, all right, well. Well, here's how the conversation went. I said, you know, I said, hi, Jim. Um, I'm writing a, a novel about an expressionist painter in Taos. It's pretty famous. He's like, oh, cool. And I said, yeah, and he, um, he shot a guy in a bar for making a comment about his kid, just like you did. And there was this kind of silence, and I said, you know, and he, and he spent a year in Santa Fe State just like you, and he got, you know, got pardoned by the governor and um, just like you, and actually kind of looks like you. I mean, um, he's tall and broad, so he's got a salt and pepper beard, and he, he wears his cap cocked on his head, his paint spatter, he's got little fishing flies, and he loves to fish just like you. And, and this is a silence. <laughs> and actually, you know, his palette is a lot like yours and he and he paints paintings you know sort of the same subjects and i kind of see them in your hand in fact there's one i just put in that your painting remember that one with the fish swallowing all those houses i think you called it like the continuing housing crisis there's <laughs> like silence you know and and i said you know and um they call him hemingway down the river just like they call you and uh i kind of went on and on and then i stopped <laughs> there's this, <laughs> there this silence and then he says, "Oh man, that sounds great. Oh, that sounds really exciting. You know, let me let me know. Keep me posted." So, I, I wrote the book. I was like, "Phew!" And I finished it. And I sent him the manuscript. And his partner told me, Mary, that like he doesn't like to read much. Uh, he's sort of dyslexic, and he's you know, he's really a visual person. He's a wonderful, wonderful painter. Jim, you can anybody can look him up. Jim Wagner and Taos. And I guess he sat at the dining room table. He just flipped the pages, um, you know, for like four days. And it was just like reading really slowly, just absorbed in it and going, oh, man, Mary, you got to hear this. This is incredible. Oh, wow. Listen to this. And when he finished, he called me up and he said, I love this. He said, I'm walking around my house wondering if I killed a guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> I thought that was like the highest praise. <laughs> well, so that's one of the subjects that we often talk about, though. This 
this division between the real world and the fictional world and then the nature of fiction and like maybe the quote unquote purpose of fiction could you speak to that a little bit what i mean so when an author takes the real world and puts it into a book what are what are they doing all of the all of these subconscious or unconscious connections to the real world that they that were unplanned yeah. to manifest yeah it's such a great question i mean it's so interesting because you know when you're in it doing it you don't you don't sort of think about that issue but you know when you do finish a book like the dog stars it it was it was the strangest thing i mean when i finished the dog stars uh i felt like i mean there were scenes in there there's a dog in there named jasper and jasper is a major character and i love jasper and when i finished the book you know here it is it's 2 years out from publication and I feel like Jasper lives in my memory and in my heart like a dog that I had. And I love him and I remember him. And that's strange to me. And it was almost when I was writing The Dog Source, it was almost like I was sort of, I had been reincarnated and, and this life that Hig lived was very real to me. You know, I never had to think, it was all inevitable as I was writing it. I never had to think about it. Um, you know, sort of someone might say, well, did you ever think about doing that, having this happen? And I'm like, what do you mean? That would be like making it up. (laughs) This is the way it happened. (laughs) It can't happen any other way. So that's very strange to me. And in the painter, I did think about it more. I mean, writing the dog stars as I was going along, I was like, don't think, as I said, don't think, don't think, don't think. And it was sort of ironic because after it came out, the Denver Post gave me a top thinker award for Colorado. <laughs> no thinking, is, no thinking, no thinking. This guy's a right. great thinker. <laughs> yeah, so, that's you know, awesome. that's odd. But it's it like this little plaque with Rodin's, you know, thinker statue on it and with a cow, wearing a cowboy hat. And, and, and now it doesn't serve anything. But when I do something stupid at home, my wife picks it up and holds it up and says, you know, <laughs> top thinker, you know. It's like, so uh, that's how that works. on but, again. <laughs> Yeah, but you know what I realized, and you know, talking about our, sort of author, authorial control, um, and then I'll tell you how the painter was a little different. Um, but in the Dog Stars, what I realized was it was not really, and and this is important to tell writers who are you know coming up and aspiring writers and people who are working hard on their craft. It wasn't really like a few state. It's it wasn't really like you know dic- taking dictation from God. That's not how it is. It is that I told you that ever since I was six years old, I wanted to be a great writer, and I did all that stuff, you know, copying out stories, and I wrote and wrote stories and poems, and then, you know, in my adult life, I tried to write all the time. I write every, when I'm on a book, I write every day, and um, I think when you put that much time into your craft, what happens is you've written so many stories. And you've written so many, you know, sort of lines of poetry. And you're, it's like riding a spirited mountain horse as you ride along. You let the horse have its rein. He knows the mountains better than you. You give him his head. He runs with you run and you let him go. He picks the route. Great. But he's a horse and you're a human. You know, you're the writer. You're the, you have you're you're the artist and the horse has a brain the size of a walnut and you have a brain the size of a human brain and so 
I don't know if a horse is braided the size of a walnut, but, you know, you get my message. <laughs> and he wants to go down at some point, you know, you run across this meadow or whatever into the woods, and he wants to turn left down this gully. And you know, because you've been there before at places like this, that that's not a good idea. And so you nudge him over to the right, and then you head up this hill, this ridge through the woods again, and then you let him run. And that's what it's like all along. I think, you know, you're making sort of these, a lot of times they're subconscious, most of the time, I think, when you get, get to this place, where you're writing along, Hig is telling you the story, and then he sort of wants to suggest that this is what happened. But because you've been there, you've written all these stories, you know that maybe that's going to be a cul-de-sac, and you nudge it over into this other path. And so you're doing this all the time. You're making all these little decisions that you don't even realize that you're making, but they come from years and years of craft. And so, you know, you can't just say it's a fugue state. Um, with the painter, you know, the dog stars, I knew when I finished it, that it was a beautiful book. I mean, I can say that. I mean, it's not, that's not immodest. It's just that I, I had worked so, so hard to write so many things. And, you know, I knew when I fit, you know, sort of once the end on the dog stars, I had that feeling like when you hit a perfect pool shop before the balls even collide, you know, it's going in. Right. And I thought the dog stars was going to be loved and that it was going to create a little bit of clamor. And I thought, you know, this is my first fiction. I don't need this for the second book. I don't need the pressure, you know, the second novel syndrome, the, sophomore effort it's going to be really tough following that act you know if it does get the kind of attention I thought it might so I started right in on the painter like I was like you know by the time the dog stars comes out I want to be most of the way done with this next novel and I sat down I started with the first line again I was sort of like don't think but then I started to think and I started to think wow you know okay here's this painter Jim and he and I'm not giving this happens in the beginning so this is not a spoiler but what happens is he kills a guy. He's going fishing one afternoon. There's a horse trailer blocking the road on his little dirt road by his creek. It's almost archery season. There's a hunting guide trying to, an outfitter trying to load a little strawberry roan. The horse won't load. The guy pulls out a club and starts to beat the horse to death. And our hero, Jim, saves the horse. He intervenes and he, and he kills the guy. Not right then, but a little later. And the whole book is about what the painter is about, what happens in his life and his art after this murder. It's all organized around the, the painting. So every chapter is the catalog resume of a painting. It'll say like horse and crow, oil on linen by 20 by 30 inches collection of the artist. So you follow the story through the work, which is kind of cool. That's that book. He kills the guy. And then I'm think, I start to think, well, uh, should there be a brother? You know, should there be, should this victim, murder victim have a brother that's been on vengeance? You know, and I called my editor and Jenny Jackson. She said, yeah, there should be a brother. <laughs> I was like, made a brother grand. And then I'm thinking, well, when should he go to Santa Fe? I started to think and started to block it out more. And then I started to think, I'm thinking that didn't happen in the dog store. So this can't be good. I mean, I'm in the middle of this quandary. I go to Peonia where we have a place. It's the little town in Western Colorado, little sort of ranching, farming, orchard, coal mining town. I go there. There's a tiny little coffee shop. It's like the size of your living room, probably. <laughs> it's got one table in the middle. You're going to talk to anybody who's in there and guess who was in there? Paolo Bacigalupi, the great science fiction writer. I mean, this guy is really great. He's won Hugo Awards, all sorts of awards, and had one book, big book after another. He wrote um, Shipbreakers and um, Wind-Up Girl. 
he's in there. So we start to talk like writers do. And I told him about this sort of like quandary I was in and about the second book. And he got this little smile and he said, you know, we were sitting and he said, let me tell you a story. I wrote one short story that I completely channeled, fugue steak, that feeling that we have, um, like the dog star. I sent it in. I, I kind of woke up, you know, it was done. I sent it in. It won an award. I love it. Second story, I designed every character to interact a certain way in every scene. I engineered the entire thing, plotted every moment, sent it in. It won an award, and I love it. And now when I hold them both up, I love them both. I can't tell the difference. And then he leaned forward and he said, your job is just to make sure it doesn't suck. And, you know, it was like the whole creative burden just lifted off my shoulders. I mean, it was like sort of like, oh, make sure it doesn't suck. I, I can do that probably. I think, I think I can do that. But what he was saying was that in revision, you know, you're, you've been doing this a long time, you know, rely on your craft. In revision, you can, you know, bush hog out the slow stuff and um, the bad stuff, tighten up the slow stuff and, and, and rearrange things and do what you need to do and just make sure it doesn't suck. And it was like such great advice. And what I realized then was that it's okay to have different methods. In fact, you know, I just finished my third novel and it had a different, so dog star sort of channel, start with the first line, just let it rip, don't think, don't think. <clears throat> painters start like that, but then start thinking and then don't worry about it. Think a little bit, then go back, let the voice run, think some more, plot some more, then go back to the voice, let it run again. You'll be surprised again, always. Third book, I actually had an idea, which I never thought I would do. <laughs> Imagine having an idea for a book. Uh, so it wasn't just waiting for the voice. I mean, the third book, I thought, you know, I want to, I, I want this to be set off the coast of Maine, and it's a, it's a, it's going to be a castaway, Odyssey novel of a guy going island to island, and that's. So I started. So I realized that it's okay for every story to have a slightly different method, and they probably will. Just the way, probably, you know, when you raise kids, you know, you're going to raise every kid a little bit differently according to their needs. Yeah, that that is interesting. I mean, so the way you describe the process for the dog stars definitely comes out in the reading that you didn't you just let it do what it's going to do and so as you describe kayaking, it was a really great thrill because I had no idea I had no idea where this thing was going and then you would get somewhere and you'd think, "Oh my gosh, this really could get bad." You know, so there's tension all the way through it to the very end, so I, I really enjoyed it. But the thing that really animates your protagonist, Hig, is these three these three elements in his life, aside from Jasper, naturally. But And I wonder if he almost thinks of them as, this, as the same thing. Could you talk a little bit about flying, fishing, and poetry, and you know what it means to Hig and what it means to you? Hmm. Huh, I hadn't really thought about it that way. That's interesting. I mean, uh, those are his three loves and his dog. And um, I think it's interesting how, I mean, it was very interesting for me as I wrote The Dog Stars that everything that I really loved, I mean, really, really loved, and the things, I mean, the things that I love to do, 
um, poured into the novel and became central. And, you know, those three things. And um, they did it naturally. They belonged there. And I realized that Higg was, he was a lot like me. He wasn't me. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm 6'1", and I, and I can't cook. Uh, he can cook. He's pretty good. <laughs> but he loves a lot of you know, the things that I love, and he shies away from things that I shy away from. And um, so it was a real, I mean, it was really lovely for me to sort of watch Hig and describe Hig and be with Hig as he flew, as he fished as he remembered his favorite poems. Um, you know, it was just, it was just um, very natural. And, um, and I, I liked being there. And so even in this really bleak world of the dog stars, I mean, it is post-apocalyptic and, you know, 99.7% of people have been killed by this flu. And here's a guy who's lost everything, right? I mean, he lost his, his wife who was pregnant with her first ch- child. And, you know, he lost all his family and his friends, obviously. Um, but here's a guy who really makes an effort to re- and remain in the beauty when he can and, and really makes an effort to stay connected to the things he loves. And those are those things. And there's a scene in there, remember, when he he goes back to his house, things are, it's, it's kind of like that chaotic mayhem of the post-apocalypse that's in all the movies. You know, there's the firefights and the fires and, the you know, people dying and he, at great risk, remember he lands his plane in a parking lot of a King Supers of a big grocery store and runs around the lake back to his house. And he ignores all the pictures of like him and his wife in their frames and stuff. He has a duffel bag. He just can't go back there. He can't, he can't go there. That's, that's over with. And he doesn't want to draw it out, the loss. But what he does do is go to the straight to the bookshelves and he fills his duffel bag full of books of poems. And then <laughs> he trots back to his plane. And I mean, he puts himself at great risk to get these books of poetry. But what he's really doing is like, it's making a stand. He's saying, you know, this is something that means a lot to me that I really love. And I'm going to stay connected to it at great risk to myself. It's sort of like, I'm going to stay connected to my humanity, even if it kills me, because without it, it's not worth living. Yeah, and and so that's one of the the conflicts is that I, I think you even state in the book when when Hig is going fishing, he's seeking connection, and and that's connection to his source. Somehow, he his transcendent moment happens in those pools when he's playing and you know you talk about the spirit of the dif- different fish on the other side he can tell yeah, yeah. But, but it's interesting because bangley is is such a left brain military mind where he's definitely you know what is the purpose of this activity we can't be recreating hig <laughs> it's funny that you focus on that word recreating because it can be read we you know my wife and i talked about it it's like is this recreating Recreating or recreating, <laughs> and, and excuse me, Bangley, the other guy at the airport. That you know, there's the two of them at the airport, right? And Bangley's just—he's the muscle, you know. He's really good at shooting people long range, and he's all about just survival. He doesn't understand that at all. It's like you know, okay, if you're going to go up there and recreate, you better bring us back some protein, you know, bring us <laughs> back a dough. 
some fish, but yeah, that's interesting. But it's it takes. I mean, so Hig definitely is this fool type archetype where it need he's the only one who's going to take a leap. Like he's just he's restless and he needs. I mean, it's it's interesting to me that that the whole book kind of hinges on on that radio call and just the idea that there's someone out there that you you might be able to connect to besides aside from this <laughs> commando. It, it, survival's not enough, I guess. Right. Exactly. And I knew. I mean, I have to say. I mean, there's a couple things I knew. I mean, it's you know, yeah, I wrote it sort of like in, in a white heat and didn't think, but I did know like a couple of things. One, I knew that halfway through he was going to have to leave the airport, that the whole book w- couldn't just be these two guys at this airport. Uh, he's going to have to leave looking for human connection. And I knew that he'd have to go past his point of no return in this little Cessna. In other words, past the point where he doesn't have enough fuel to get back uh, to safety, um, get back home. And, I knew that for dramatic reasons. So I had this idea that that was going to happen. And then I knew, you know, he would be going to look for that broken radio transmission that happens towards the beginning of the book that he talks about. This voice from Grand Junction Control Tower. He would have to go there and, you know, try and find whoever sent it, you know, seeking that human connection. Who's out there? Who's out there? And I had no idea what was going to happen when he, I mean, I had, I had an idea of the people that were living in the control tower and what they'd be doing. I thought they'd be living with a lot of books and that they would have literary conversations when he actually shows up, something very different happens and I won't spoil it, but a very, you know, surprised the heck out of me. (laughs) And then the third thing I knew is that I had an image for the end and that's it. Just an image. And that's kind of all the things that I that I knew that I would have to write to. It it is funny because there is one point when when Hig almost repeats the the speech he gives at the beginning of the book where you know he's saying I'm Hig I was born in the year of the rat I'm an Aquarius my favorite books are Shane and Infinite Jest but it doesn't right. ever go beyond that and so you just think boy that is that's something then you know Infinite Jest is quite different than Shane. <laughs> right. But that's how Hig is. I mean, you know, Hig is Hig is that sort of mix of, you know, I mean, he is sort of a hero. He's a Western character, you know, I mean, Western like cowboy shoot up Western yeah. in a way. And, you know, he doesn't he's not self-conscious about it. He doesn't style himself that way. But you can see that that inf- somehow informs him those kind of books. And then, yeah, Infinite Jest. I mean, Hig, Hig does have that sort of foolish, vulnerable you know, and he's funny, you know, that, that surprised me too. I mean, you know, in the middle, I mean, listen, you know, three days into writing this, I sort of had a similar experience as when I was writing the painter, you know, it's like, Oh crap. You know, I am writing a post-apocalyptic novel. I mean, that became clear in the first couple of pages, but it's like, I don't want to write this a, because I don't my for my first novel, I don't want it to have be a genre book. I want to write, you know, literary fiction, right? <laughs> and B, I don't want to get compared to The Road and Cormac McCarthy. I mean, your first time out as a novelist, that's the last thing you want is to get compared to Cormac McCarthy. I mean, bad idea, right? So, but you know, what I realized as I was writing that it was a different project than The Road. I mean, he is goofy. 
he has a sense of humor that's irrepressible. He has a certain joy of life that you just can't kill. And so it's not nearly as bleak and as, you know, just relentlessly uh, desolate as The Road. And I thought, okay, this is a different project. I, you know, I'll just forge ahead. Uh, well, I, I, I'm kind of free associating this book, The Dog Stars, with another uh, nonfiction book that you wrote, The Well Warriors. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about your feeling for the future of mankind, whether it be optimistic or pessimistic. Mm. Wow, that's a great question. Yeah, you know, the so one of the, the book I got, let's see, the book I wrote two books before The Dog Stars was a, an account of going with Sea Shepherd um, down to Antarctica with them. I wrote it for National Geographic Adventure. And, um, you know, I was supposed to go for a month uh, on their eco-pirate ship. And I showed up with a duffel bag on the, the Victoria, new Victoria Pier in Melbourne, um, which is all these cafes and restaurants, kind of prosperous and bustling. I showed up with my duffel bag and a, and a letter, by the way, the na- the National Geographic Society would not let me go on this trip without having a letter signed by Captain Paul Watson saying I was a non-participant. They were very afraid of me glorifying um, eco-piracy and terrorism and, you know, kind of going native, right? And so I had the letter that I was a journalist, non-participant, laminated because I thought, you know, if we sink, which is, you know, there's a good possibility that the Japanese will sink us since we're trying to ram them on the high seas. Um, you know, maybe in those, you know, freezing Antarctic waters, I can like wave this letter around and, and say, Hey, you know, pick me up and don't throw me in the brig and feed me whale meat. Right. (laughs) I need to write the story. But anyway, I went and I show up at the pier. There's this all black pirate ship with the Jolly Rogers flying at the bow and on the superstructure, you know, the part that sticks up with the bridge on it painted are all these skulls and crossbones. And they have the names of ships under them. Isba 1, Isba 2, the Marilled. They're all ships that these guys had rammed or sunk. And, you know, I was like, huh. You know, I just started to get this feeling like this isn't the, like, this fun adventure story that I thought it was going to be. And then I get to my berth and there's a little sign that says you got to, you know, you're required to sleep in your clothes. Because if, you know, if the ship is sunk, like at port even, the way Rainbow Warrior was sunk by the French commandos, and the and the French and the and the photographer died. The Dutch photographer on the boat died. Then, um, it's the time it takes for you to get your clothes on can um, you know you can lose your life trying to get off wow. the ship. So then I was like, uh, 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 you know. And then we go down to Tasmania on the way to Antarctica to hunt for the Japanese and um, pick up the helicopter in Hobart and are a couple of days south of that when we're kind of beyond the arm of the law. And all these welders come on deck and weld a big blade onto the bow, they call a can opener, for like gutting the hulls of Japanese ships. And I was like, oh my God, these guys are deadly freaking serious. And, I, you know, I realized it wasn't a lark and that everyone on the boat, you know, except me, was completely committed and willing to die to save a whale. And that was very profoundly moving to me. And... As we went south and as we hunted the Japanese and encountered them and saw the, you know, the whales, um, you know, the, the dead whales tied to the side of the harpoon boats and stuff. Um, and as I heard, there were people on the ship who were biologists, who were uh, 
environmental filmmakers, documentary filmmakers, people who knew, and the Sea Shepherd people themselves, who knew a lot about the crisis of the oceans and what the oceans were going through, and the entire ecosphere, really. And as I learned more and more, and there were lots of books on the boat, and as I read, and I mean, I, you know, I've been an environmental journalist. I knew a lot of stuff, but there were a lot of stories um, about the, like, the growing um, threat to coral reefs that I didn't really know about. I didn't, I didn't know that half our coral reefs were dead or dying, that the oceans are more acidic now than they've been in a long 650,000 years and um, getting more and more acidic by the minute. And that, you know, the, the ecosphere, which I knew was unraveling, I discover is unraveling, you know, is much more tenuous and unraveling at a faster rate than I thought. So, you know, this really, and it profoundly moved me that there were, you know, 44 people on this ship of, you know, there's like 7 point whatever billion people on the planet. The earth is 70% covered by oceans and by water. That the Japanese were hunting whales in a whale sanctuary or internationally ordained whale sanctuary using a loophole loophole they called it you know science it was for scientific research and you know that's you know the, there was a, uh, allowed in this um moratorium that was established in the 80s there was a loophole for scientific research okay if you want to kill a whale to you know for science okay but they were they used that to do wholesale commercial slaughter of whales you know 1300 minke whales and you know i i saw all this and I thought it was profoundly moving that nobody was willing to stand up to the Japanese or stand up for the oceans uh, in a very active, you know, very, very um, courageous way. But this, you know, one little ship before this one converted trawler of 44 people. And so I sort of got sucked into the whole project. And I came back from that. I mean, I was supposed to be gone a month, and I called my wife. You know, the day before I was supposed to show up in Denver, we were in literally 40-foot seas with ice in the water and had been almost rammed by the huge factory ship. Um, you know, we all thought we were going down. And I called my wife, and I said, hey, um, I'm supposed to be home tomorrow. I know, but we're a 1,000 miles from any port, and we don't have enough gas, any fuel to get home back to Australia. So we're we're going to try and make Cape Town. And uh, I don't think I'm going to be home tomorrow. And it actually was another month. And it was just a very, very, very transformative, uh, you know, expedition for me and story and experience. And I wrote the book. I realized I was supposed to be writing a surf a book about surfing, which I did end up writing later. But I called my editor and I said we got to write this book. This is the story of our time. We are in the middle of the sixth great mass extinction, and this one is being caused by us. And this is, there is no, there is no greater story. In fact, there is no other story, really. And um, that's kind of informed me ever since. And uh, I do think that it is one of the most interesting, the most interesting time, excuse me, to be a human being on the planet to bear witness because things are changing faster than they've ever changed. And we're watching a, you know, profound change of the entire world that, you know, the last time this happened was 65 million years ago when the Earth shrugged off over 90% of its biota. So here we are. And, you know, we caused it. And it's, 
it's profoundly interesting and it's profoundly sad. And, you know, so that, that informed the dog stars. I mean, I went out to breakfast um, on a regular basis before in the, in the years since the whale warriors. And before I wrote the dog stars, one of my dear friends in town was a paleobotanist named Kirk Johnson. And he was a curator of, of, of paleontology at the museum of nature and science. He kind of ran the place in Denver. It's a great museum. And, um, we would have breakfast and we, we always ended up talking about the sixth great mass extinction and how that would impact. And, and, and the conversation oftentimes came around to like, how is that going to impact? Is it, you know, not if, but when it does, how is it going to impact human society? Uh, in what ways, you know, as, as we really unravel in ways that really affect us, uh, which, you know, is happening now, you know, with the droughts in Africa and stuff like that. Um, and this conversation somehow weren't really depressing. They were sort of invigorating and exciting because Kirk, he had the long view. I mean, this guy studies 70 million year old fossil leaves, right? If anyone has a long view, the guy's got it. And he's like, listen, don't worry about the planet. I mean, the planet will, and he's a profound, you know, he's a deep environmentalist. I mean, he really believes we got to cut our carbon and all that stuff. But the longer view is, the earth will shrug us off. And, you know, 65 million years ago, there was that mass extinction. 90% of life on earth vanished. Look at the biodiversity we have now. And I'd be like, well, you know, what about you and me and the sparrows and the swallows? And we're in Kyle's kitchen, right? What about Kyle over there? You know, she's making eggs, you know, it's like, he's like, ah, don't be so high maintenance, dude. You know, (laughs) don't worry about it. (laughs) But, those conversations had to, you know, really affected me. And, and I think so when I sat down to write the dog stars, you know, that, you know, that sort of environmental piece of it was going to be in the background. It was going to be central to it and inform it. Okay. Well, that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. It was great to be here. Thanks a lot, guys. You bet. We appreciate it. You've been listening to Peter Heller on SyncBook Radio, a production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Mr. Heller can be found at peterheller.net. For more information about the Sync Book, our guests, check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we urge you to become a donor. You'll find the donation link to each episode on the website and consider setting up a monthly charge. Thanks so much, and someday we will be back together again. We will sit in the candlelight by the west window and I will tell you how I remember you tonight on the stormy mountain
Yes, I cry.